Matthew chapter 26. This is a long chapter. I don't know if you guys have picked up on that. Matthew 26, verse 47. You can turn there. So last week, uh, many of you were here. Some of you maybe weren't with the Easter holiday. Just to kind of recap some of the things that just expand on what Jason said with the kids. Um, we talked about Jesus' prayer in the garden and how it was it was almost more of a prayer for you and me than it was for Jesus himself. Because if it weren't for Jesus' resolution to obey his Father, the will of his Father, none of us would have any hope of being reconciled to a holy God. None of us would. It's, we talked about how it's right for God to pour out his wrath on sin because sin is what keeps us apart from him. And so it's right for God to punish that which destroys us. We also talked about how ultimately God, Jesus died for God before he died for us. Because he drank the cup, the full cup to the dregs that we talked about, because he drank God's wrath that fully, that completely, he completely wiped out the sin debt that we owed. For everyone who puts their faith and trust in God alone, he became sin who knew no sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. So today we move on in the story and we're going to see Jesus being questioned by the high priest and being condemned, sentenced to death. We're going to look, and I'll tell you when, but we're going to look in John chapter 11 and kind of cross-reference a couple of these accounts today. But I want to start in Matthew 26. We're going to look at verses 47 through 68. Read along with me and then we'll have a word of prayer before we continue. Matthew 26, 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with him were with Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but all that has been taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found no one. So many false, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two men came, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What 
is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Let's pray. Lord, we read these words removed by thousands of years, and yet we see the injustice here. We see the truth, and yet it seems like very few others in this story did. And yet, Lord, our minds in 2019 are clouded just the same by our own sin, by the entanglement of the world around us. Lord, the evil ones constantly preying on people who he would devour. And Lord, we need your guidance. As as my brother Craig prayed already today, Lord, we need you to come and speak to us. Give us strength for the message you have for us today to hear. In Christ's name, amen. So we see that Judas, Judas has already committed in his heart to betray the Jesus. Uh, that was something he'd already decided to do. And we find out in the text that he's kind of set up this, this plan, this indication. He's worked out a sign to the people who he's going to give Jesus over to, to identify who's going to be arrested. It was with a kiss. Um, he, he brought with him this band of people. Uh, this is probably a Roman cohort. And depending on, you know, who's talking, uh, it could be anywhere from, along with the, 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 the guards of the high priests and the scribes and the elders, the whole group of people that came against Jesus in the garden could have been up to six, 700 people, military trained people. Uh, John's account of this story is the one who identifies Peter as the guy who pulls out his sword and takes a swing at probably the first person that he could see and it was the servant of the high priest and John tells us his name was Malchus. So Peter in all of the commotion needing to be first to do something <laughs> takes his sword out and just starts swinging and he hits this this man's ear. Luke's account of this story tells us that Jesus uh, just touches the man's ear and it's healed immediately and he has something to say to Peter. Um on the surface, though, at this point, it looks like Peter is, is kind of backing up what he said before, right? Because if you think about the last couple of things he said to Jesus at the, at the supper, the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, you guys are all going to walk away. And Peter said, no, even if everyone else falls away because of you, I will not. To the death, I'll follow you. And it, it appears here, you know, he's taken, taken up an offense for Jesus. He's kind of walking that path. But he didn't know the whole story. He didn't understand what Jesus needed to do here. And I think Peter still just didn't want to believe that Jesus had to die. It's now been four times that Jesus said, I'm going to die. And Peter just resisted in his spirit. And we see he responded in 
kind of, if you want to say, his default. And, and most of the time that's a, that's a sinful default. He made an impulsive decision. And in this, in this instance, that was just brute force, right? Started swinging. But you know, it really wasn't a very good plan. Peter's one guy with a sword against possibly 600 trained military guys. And apparently, as Jason said, he wasn't very good aim with a sword because he just hit a guy's ear. Um, it wasn't a very well thought out plan here, but it, it kind of made me wonder, uh, how, how do I respond when things in my life don't turn out the way that I expect them to, right? Cause Peter was here. Jesus is being delivered. He's going to be arrested. Peter's like, no, this, this is not how this is going to happen. And and I, f- I feel that I, I'm in a similar boat sometimes, and you guys probably are too. When, when our view of what should happen isn't what's happening, our sinful default rises to the surface, doesn't it? And for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it's, it's fix it right now immediately. That, that's, my, that's my default. If there's a problem, you just do what you got to do and you fix it. I'm, Nikki can attest to this. Over 15 years of marriage... I am a fixer, and she has tried to teach me lovingly and patiently most of the time. Um, <laughs> you don't always have to fix everything right away. So I'm learning. I'm learning to be a good listener. Uh, and, and part of what I want to learn to do, and I think we would all want this, is to not just listen in order to respond and have our opinion heard, but to listen so that we can understand what the other person is saying. So listen for understanding, not just for a response. Um, but I can't, you know, admitting that flaw in my character to you, I, I can't tell you how many proverbial ears I've cut off by making a rash, impulsive decision. Not understanding the whole situation, not taking time to listen or understand. Peter didn't do this either. It was almost as if Peter was saying, Jesus, surely being captured and put on a trial is not the way that this is supposed to go down. So I'm, you know, I'm just going to take my sword. I'm just going to do this thing. I'm going to help you out. You know, we're not picking up swords, but we're saying the same thing. Jesus, this isn't how my life is supposed to go, I don't think. So I'm, I'm just going to do this thing, and I'm going to help you out with it. Right? Because we think that we, we know better than the Lord. Um, we have to recognize, though, brothers and sisters, that this situation in the life of Jesus is ordained, it was orchestrated, and it is brought to completion by a sovereign God who really does truly love his son. All of this is God-ordained. And God's plan to bring you and me, to bring us into that love relationship, involved the path was Jesus going to the cross. It did. There was no other way for this to happen. And while we might not understand what God is doing in our circumstances, there's always purpose and there's always design to it. Our lives, in the same way as Jesus, are ordained. They are orchestrated and completed, brought to completion by a sovereign God who really, truly does love you. But he cares about you in this way. So God is, is using this, at least in my life this week, hopefully in yours too, as a reminder that God's ways are not our ways. 
are they? And here's the question that I think we wrestle with the most in that. Because we've heard that and we know that. We've heard that scripture. We know God's ways are not ours. Um, His thoughts are not our thoughts. That's good. But the thing that we wrestle with is, is, is this. Are we getting better with being okay with that? That's hard. Are we getting better with being okay with the fact that God's plans for our lives aren't always what our plans for our lives are? That's what's challenging. That's what's hard here. And in our story today, Peter's fix it right now attitude just comes bursting to the surface as it so often does with us too. But kids, here's the thing. Adults, here's the thing. Peter didn't understand that the way to victory here wasn't with a sword. It was with a cross. It was with a cross. Jesus tells him what we talked about last week here at Ramsey Creek. It was the cup that the Father had. It was this cup that he was being asked to drink. So go ahead and turn in your Bible to John chapter 18. John 18. There's a passage here that I want us to see. This is what Jesus says to Peter right after he heals this man, Malchus's ear. He says something to Peter, John 18, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Put your sword away, Peter. This is, this is my plan. This is God's design. Peter didn't understand that, but Jesus has set his face to the cross. He was resolved to follow this through. And praise God that he did. He was making clear though, I think, by all of this, that his arrest was his choice. Right? Peter thought, I gotta stop this. And Jesus said, no, this is my choice. So many things in our life say, God, we gotta stop this. And God's trying to get us to understand Son, daughter, this is my choice for you. In Matthew's account, Jesus reminds Peter that he could call down how many legions of angels? Twelve. Who knows how many a legion is? Uh, in some of the research that I did, and this might vary depending on era and time frame, but a Roman legion was anywhere between three and 6,000 men. So taking the low estimate of these numbers, Jesus is saying, Peter, don't you understand? I could call down 36,000 angels to deliver me if, if I needed. If you remember some, we're not going to look at them, but if you remember some of the, the stories from the Old Testament, a single angel could wipe out an entire army in, in minutes. And Jesus is saying, Peter, 36,000 angels are at my disposal. Don't you think I could stop this if I wanted to? But he didn't want to because he had something else in his mind that Peter did not understand. You know, 36,000 angels is way overkill, right? Even if there were upwards of a 1,000 men with Judas to take Jesus by force, 36,000 angels had no problem. This was evidence again of what Jesus says to Peter right here. Shouldn't I drink the cup that the Father has given me? It had to be this way, says in Matthew and in John. 
it had to be this way in order for Scripture to be fulfilled. What's he getting at? If you look at John 18, verse 9, he says, Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. I've not lost one. That's why he says, Peter, put your sword away. I'm not going to lose you. I'm not going to lose any of these others. I'm not going to lose any of you. And he warns Peter then. He says, Peter, violence is not the answer here. This is not what I want for you. In fact, I think we can understand that usually violence begets more violence. Anger, more anger. Revenge, more revenge. And he's saying, Peter, that's not the path I want you to take here. He he then points out almost the silliness of this big group of people with clubs and pitchforks and torches. You can imagine that scene. He, he's kind of pointing out how silly it is that they would come at him like this to take him. He says, I was integrated in your lives every day. I was in the, te- I was in the temple learning and teaching every day, day after day. Why didn't you do anything then? You did nothing then. In reality, brothers and sisters, it wasn't going to take a small army, just one so-called friend to deliver Jesus. But we find out again the purpose in this, if you look back at Matthew uh, chapter 26, verse 56, that Scripture might be fulfilled. This was really interesting. Psalm 41, verse 9, I think Jesus may have had in mind here. And that verse says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Scripture might be fulfilled. Then it says in our account in Matthew that all the disciples left him and fled. Now we see too, though, that Peter does stick around for a little while. He tries to hang out and see what would happen. But it was from here on out that Jesus was on his own. He was, he was by himself. No more conversations with his friends. No more times of prayer in peace in the garden. No one coming to his defense. The Father's plan was unfolding right before their eyes. They didn't know it. The religious leaders, we see after he was captured, the religious leaders were doing everything that they could to try to convince Caiaphas, the high priest, that, that he needed to die. That this man was a troublemaker, he was a problem, he deserved death. And so they tried to bring in all these people to give testimony, to convict him, and they couldn't do it, could they? They brought false witnesses in and none of it worked. Eventually, though, they found a couple of people that had seen and heard Jesus say he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, we understand what Jesus was saying on this side of the cross with that, but they didn't understand that. And so they were taking it as a threat against a monument, and that was good enough for Caiaphas. That was it. That was good enough. So he goes straight to Jesus. He says, hey, is this, are these things true, what they're saying about you? Jesus remained silent. This too fulfilled scripture. Isaiah 53, 7, if you'll remember, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. This again was fulfillment of scripture. And so I don't know if Caiaphas was getting upset and irritated, but he kind of presses Jesus more. Jesus reveals more at that point. He says, not only is he the son of God, which is what they said he said, but they would soon see him, as Jesus says in Matthew 26, seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. 
You can get away with a lot of things, but as we see in the life of Jesus, you claim to be God or the Son of God, and you're in trouble. Then you tell them that you're going to come in power and rule over them. Uh, that's not going to fly. You remember the story of Joseph and his dreams and how his brothers responded? Yeah, same response here. The religious leaders' verdict in verse 66, Caiaphas says, what do you guys say? What happens to him? It wasn't like, oh, he needs to go into a rehabilitation program. He needs to be talked to. You know, he deserves death. For that kind of response, he deserves to die. And I'm sure in their minds, they're thinking, yes, finally, we got him. We got him. They've been trying to trip Jesus up for a long time, for years. And now they finally had him. It took a while but they had him, and boy, I think they reveled in it. Because it says they spit in his face. You, you can't get much more disrespectful than doing that kind of a thing. They spit in his face, and they mocked him. They made fun of him. They smacked him and slapped him. The truest man in all the universe stood before him, and they mocked him. They condemned the truth to die. This group of religious leaders, they still weren't really concerned with the truth, though. They just wanted to be in charge. And they certainly didn't want Jesus to be in charge. But they also didn't want Rome to come in and take away their freedoms. And this is, I think, sort of at the crux of what, what happened here. Um, you know, when, when the religious leaders were in charge, before Jesus showed up on the scene, things were golden. Everything was going fine. You know, people looked up to them, respected them. Everything was good. But now Jesus is here and he's saying all of these crazy things. It, it seems like he might actually be what he's claiming because he's doing all these wonderful miracles. Um, he's stirring people up. And so they're thinking, we could be in danger from Rome here too. Now, it, it might appear this way from our text in Matthew 26, but in, in John 11, we see that this is not Caiaphas's first encounter with Jesus. Or at least this is not the first time Jesus has come up in conversation. So turn back to John 11, verse 45 through 52. This is John's account of this. Actually, before this happened, John 11, 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, that the, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Isn't that an incredible passage in correlation with what we're talking about in Matthew ch chapter 26? We see the motivation behind, really it's a mock trial that Caiaphas put on in Matthew 26, but we see why it came to this in John chapter 11. This council 
that's talked about is, is probably the Sanhedrin. It's this, um, it's kind of the Supreme Court for the Jewish nation. And these guys have gathered together and they're saying to themselves, guys, if Jesus keeps doing this, everybody's going to believe in him and it's going to start a riot and Rome is going to come in and try to squash it. And then a bunch of us are going to die and they're going to take away our nation and all of our freedom. Rome was going to come in, probably destroy their temple and crush their identity as a Jewish nation. That's what they were, they were afraid of. You know, Jesus wasn't just this blasphemer anymore saying that he was the son of God. They viewed him as a threat to the very existence of the Jewish nation. One commentator says, the one who came to save is now feared as a destroyer. So Caiaphas offers a pretty simple solution to their problem in kind of sarcastic format. He says, you guys don't know anything. Here's what you got to do. Just kill him. Just kill him. It's better for one person to die so the whole nation won't. Wow, what a statement that is. Caiaphas says, we'll kill him so that the Romans won't kill us. We're gonna, let's substitute Jesus for us. This is incredible because at the heart of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is substitution. Jesus in our place. So, so I want us to see it this way this morning. In the mind of Caiaphas, it worked out this way. In his mind, he says, okay, we killed Jesus so that the Romans won't kill us. We're going to substitute Jesus for ourselves. But in the mind of God, the substitution was this. It looked more like this. He says, I'm going to kill my son so I don't have to kill you. I'm going to substitute Jesus for sinners. I realize that it's difficult to to put a loving, supreme, sovereign God in the same sentence as someone who willingly kills their son. But Isaiah chapter 53 really talks about it in those terms. You can see in your notes and from the chapter there in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, it says that Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 6 says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. I mean, even John 3.16 bears it out in the same way. God loved the world so much that he what? He gave up his only son. He did this willingly, thoughtfully. And brothers and sisters, God did this for you. Later on in that chapter, Isaiah 53, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. You've heard this before. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This was God's design from the beginning. It was God's plan from the start. It's not cold. It's not heartless. It's not callous. It's Jesus' love for the Father. And it's the Father's love for the Son that overflows into this incredible love that spills over into relationship with you and me. Everyone who believes. Because of that love relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we have peace, we have forgiveness of sins, and we are healed Isaiah 53 says. Now there's one last thing that I want to point out from our text. 
that I, I think is really important here. And it really reveals the character of God. And in John 11, we see Caiaphas' words. They're his words. He spoke them. But they're really not his words, are they? It says John explains what he says. And he says that Caiaphas was prophesying. He was saying what God wanted him to say. And this is the truth here. This is what I want us to see. Caiaphas's words were really not his own. They were God's words. Now, in one sense, like I said, they are his words. Because in, in, they relayed his meaning. In Caiaphas's mind, he wanted Jesus dead, out of the way, and so he spoke these words. Death. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation. So Caiaphas spoke those words. But in the same way, in a different sense, God spoke those words, didn't he? Because God wanted Jesus dead so that he could rise, so that he could reign, and so that he could bring all of the sons and daughters to God. So in one sense, this is Caiaphas saying, it's better for this man to die than for the whole nation. And at the other sense, it's God saying, it's better for him to die so that many who believe would be able to be saved. It's a dual meaning in this. And this is a plan that seems strange to us, admittedly, but it perfectly accomplishes God's purposes here. And notice something else. Notice what God did not do. God didn't show up in the middle of this trial and say, oh no, how did this happen? How did my son get convicted for a crime he didn't commit? What am I going to do? God didn't come in and say that. This wasn't surprising to God at all. It was God who brought these words out of Caiaphas's mouth, mouth and it was God who owned the cup that Jesus was going to drink. These things were designed and planned by God. The death of Jesus was not just a tragic set of events that God turned for good, brothers and sisters. It was a loving set of events that God planned for good. They were planned. And this plan involved, as we see in Matthew, gathering together the children of God who are scattered abroad. Inside, think about John 3.16 again for a second. Y'all, our Awana kids even know that verse. So many of us do. Inside that verse is a particular invitation with a particular purpose of God in saving his children. There's a purpose in there. The cross, brothers and sisters, didn't just pave the way or make it possible for people to be saved. Jesus didn't die for the possibility that sinners might turn to him. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the power of God to overcome our rebellion and to bring us to saving faith. It accomplished all of that because of God's plan. God accomplishes by his grace what we could never accomplish on our own. And in all of these things, God is gathering together his children who are scattered abroad. So you could insert in there all over the world, the globe, areas, people groups, were scattered. Jew, Gentile, far off, near, all of these things are wrapped up into that who are scattered abroad. And, and again, I hope you understand what I'm saying because I've repeated it several times. Caiaphas 
said exactly what God meant for him to say. And his words had deeper meaning than he ever even realized. From the outside, his words condemned Jesus. But from the inside, his words had saving implications. Guys, it's this way in our lives too. It really, really is. Events and situations in your life, they're going to look dire. From the outside, they're going to look like there's no hope. They're going to look like maybe even that God is being cold and callous to us. But inside, God is in fact at work. God is moving. And make no mistake about it. He works for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. He works for good. We cannot rely on the outward appearances. We cannot rely on our feelings on any given day alone. We have to trust, and this is so hard, but we have to trust the planning and the execution of a sovereign God who really, truly, genuinely loves us. Who genuinely works for our good. Guys, if the resurrection has taught us anything, it's that God gets victory through apparent defeat, right? What we thought was terrible, what Peter feared so much was God's plan exactly. The last thing today, I want us to remember the heart of the gospel is substitution, right? Caiaphas meant let's kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. God meant I'll kill my son so I don't have to kill you. Substitution in our place. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks with Barabbas. That part of the story is coming up. And we're going to talk about God in our place. But I want us to look back at 1 Peter. This is in your notes. You don't have to turn there. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It was God's design for Jesus to suffer so that he might bring us to God. Brothers and sisters, your conscience, the evil one, they're going to speak words that can want to condemn you. They're going to. God, the devil is going to bring up your past. Recent, distant, he's going to bring it up to try and condemn you and make you think that you're not worthy of the love of God. But nothing will have more true power to comfort us than the word of God itself. Specifically, Romans chapter 8 speaks to this. And so I just want to read the first four verses of Romans 8. It's in your notes. You're welcome to join along in Scripture if you want to turn there. But I want us to think about this in relation to the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you see what he's getting at here? Simplified, I think it's this. God condemned your sin in his son. You get that? It says condemned in the flesh, in the flesh of Christ on the cross. God condemned your sin and my sin on his son. He became sin 
so that by faith we could become something so much more than we ever could on our own. There's now nothing that he will condemn us for. You're free to live in love as Jesus did. Guys, Christ as our substitute, as our substitution means that we now live a life we owe to God because he died a death we owe to God. We now today, you can find life through Jesus because he died in your place. And that's the beauty of substitution. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus took your place. And so when we think of Matthew 26, the text that we were in this morning, these men, these high priests, these elders and scribes, they condemned the truth because they did not want to hear it. Brothers and sisters, we can do that today. You can do that. And many of us do. I do it sometimes. We see the truth. We read the truth. We hear the truth from our brothers and sisters looking out for us. And we say, I don't like that. I don't, I'm not going to believe that. That's not good. That's hard. I don't need that negativity in my life today. And yet it's the truth. Are we going to condemn it? Are we going to embrace it? Are we going to live in the light of it? We have the option. Is our default sinful nature going to rise up and not listen to anybody and just do what we want to do? That's another temptation that we have to fight. Understand that Jesus took your place. He died, as Caiaphas said, he died for a nation that might be brought back to God. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you're part of the nation that Jesus is bringing back by his blood. I pray that you're a part of that today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. The truth is that you condemned my sin on Christ on the cross. I didn't ask you to do that, Lord. I wasn't around when you did. Even if I did, I wasn't worthy to ask you to do that sort of a thing. Every one of us in this room is, is full of sin. And yet, Lord, for all those who put their faith and their hope and their trust in Christ, Lord, you don't see that when you look at us now. You see your children, you see a blood-bought, wiped clean son or daughter. And Lord, only you could bring that about. So we know that things in this life sometimes don't look the way that we think they should, just like it was in this story. And yet, Lord, you're working behind the scenes, under the surface, to bring about, to orchestrate, to complete in us a work that we can't see happening in the moment. And so I pray that our, our vision is not so short-sighted that we only focus on the here and now, but instead, Lord, we would trust in your sovereign goodness in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your sovereign goodness because we know that every good thing comes from you. And so I pray as, as we reflect on that this morning, as we sing a little bit more, God, I pray that you would move in our hearts in a way maybe we didn't expect. But Father, help us to cling to the truth. And not set it aside because we're too proud or it's too hard. Give us grace to receive it as you would have us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.